Hey Siri, what does it mean to be invisible? Here's what I found from your dictionary.com. The definition of invisible is something that cannot be seen or someone who is ignored and treated as if he is not seen. Have you ever felt this way? Like you're being overlooked and pushed aside? As a woman, I know I have. It's this thing where society underestimates you or discriminates against you because you're a woman. Like being passed up for a promotion you earned or not being allowed to run for office even though you're qualified to do so. Invisibility manifests in different ways, but ultimately, it leaves you feeling alone, like you don't matter. Hi, my name is Aisha Salahuddin, and I like girls. This is a podcast about African women and the different experiences life throws at us just for being women. In today's episode, two women tell us about their fight to stay seen. Hi, my name is Mariam Atoebi or Malika Mariam. I currently live in Canada. I relocated to Ottawa last summer. I am a freelance content strategist, communications coordinator and ETC. Malika Miriam has many stories of feeling invisible. One of them has to do with the National Youth Service Corps, or NYSC. NYSC is this compulsory one-year-long program run by the Nigerian government. It works like this. A higher institution graduate gets relocated to a new part of the country, where they are given jobs and paid monthly by the government. The whole point of the program is to promote national unity. Like, you most likely be relocated to a different part of the country, where you meet new people and learn about their culture. For many Nigerians, it's the first time they experience life outside their state of residence. Um, I had, I absolutely hated it anyway. I just thought it was something I had to do. I had zero expectations. Malika Miriam is not talking about the program as a whole. She's talking about camp. So, for the first three weeks of NYC, you're expected to stay in a military-controlled camp in the state you're posted to. These camps are usually massive, filled with thousands of graduates, and poorly managed. Malika Miriam's camp was in Kwara, not central Nigeria. It's the most ghetto scene I've ever, ghetto place I've ever seen in my entire life. It's fucking disgusting. She said the camp had many problems. It was overcrowded and lacking basic amenities. It was just like buildings, right? Uh, bungalows, I call them bungalow style buildings with tiny, tiny rooms and just bunks. And so each of those blocks had three toilets each and then three bathroos. They were up to six. And we were, I think we were almost maybe two, two to three hundred in one, um, okay. in one so block. So it would mean that hundreds of people were sharing just three bathrooms. We're supposed to, but a lot of us did not use them because they were very disgusting. Like, So what did you guys use? Did you shower outside? We showered outside because they were, dis- they were disgusting and moldy. And like literally when you walk up, when you, walk on the bathrooms you just feel like you were just slippery there were, there were no tiles so it was cement but cement with mold and yeast oh ew as malika Miriam said it was the absolute ghetto but she was about to discover something even more ghetto than moldy slippery bathrooms Every graduate in camp has to wear a uniform. 
for most of the orientation, I wore a half kimar on top of like my my white uh, shirt. So my shorts were still showing. It was just three quarters anyway. So you could still see my shorts. You could see my socks. You could see my boots. It was just like short sleeve top. A kimar is a form of hijab that drapes all the way from the head to the elbows or hands. As a Muslim woman, Malika Miram wore it over her NYC uniform. But not many people were happy with her dressing. She heard things like, Oh, wow, you speak so good for the way you're dressed. They assumed that because she wore the hijab, she wouldn't know how to speak and read properly. And then there was also me refusing to shake men. I still, I mean, I don't shake men till now. Then it was a little bit religious, but then I don't like men like that too. I just refused to shake men. Malika Miram did not like contact with the opposite sex, so she did her best to avoid shaking men. And that did not sit well with some of them. This one time, while she was having lunch with some friends, some guy looking to be part of their friend group came over to introduce himself. He stretched his hand to shake her. And I was like, oh, sorry, no, I, I don't shake men. And I was like, and so this other guy there that I think he already had it in me was like, so wait, can you like just tell everybody why? Like, <laughs> she doesn't shake boys. Can you imagine? What kind of backwardness is that? That kind of thing. And then he kept going back and forth. Like, at the point, people stepped in, like, guy, free her now. And he was like, no, now, but what kind of stupid religion is that? What kind of stupid? I was like, it's my body, it's my hand. I don't want to shake you. Like, I'm going to shake men. And he kept saying that, oh, what kind of stupid religion is that? So him shaking me is sexual assault. Like, what kind of stupid religion is that that, that forces women? I was like, I'm not forced. I'm not going to shake you still, right? And at the point, I just stopped talking. Malika Miram immediately realized what she was dealing with. Islamophobia. She was a visible Muslim woman in camp and she faced a lot of hate for it. The microaggressions made me feel very angry. It made me, it made me, I don't know what to say, it made me feel small. It made me angry because they tried to make me feel small and they tried to, um, they tried to undermine my existence. So it really made me very annoyed. Honestly, it was very awful. So beyond all those, beyond all of that, it made me angry for the most part. And I kept to myself. I stopped, I just became a recluse. I stopped talking to people. There was this particular camp official that constantly made Malika Miram feel small. One hot afternoon, she was on a long queue with a friend, waiting to get her camp allowance. When this man showed up and started yelling, What kind of stupid clothing? You are a stupid person. You are very stupid. I told you not to wear this rubbish, this rag that you keep wearing. And all of that was being verbally abusive. And all of you are terrorists. Unfortunately, there was a bombing. There was a bombing in the north around that time. That is people like you that committed, that killed people in this thing. Killing Christians everywhere, killing people everywhere. People like you, people dressed like you. You're wearing this thing that they are using to commit murder. You're a murderer. Malika Miram was hurt. His words were heavy and painful. All that virtual over the piece of clothing she chose to wear. I don't think I've ever even... I just remember feeling angry and upset. And I've never processed it. I don't think I processed it. Or maybe I just buried the other external feelings I felt after that day. But I know that I felt terrible. I cried. I was angry for a long time. She wrote a letter to the camp commander about her struggle and that of other Muslim women in camp. 
about the bullying and Islamophobia, but nothing was really done about it. To be clear, Muslim women were only allowed to wear hijabs or scarves that stopped at their necks. So yes, Malika Merim was breaking camp rules by wearing a hijab that covered her arms. But she knew that the hate she was getting was not because of the hijab rule. If that was it, she would have simply been asked to change to a smaller hijab and not subjected to labels like murderer and terrorist. It was, it was not worth it. It was, very, it was a disgusting and awful place, first of all. Then to now add the misogyny and rubbish. Yeah, I was like, yeah, fuck, fuck these people, fuck this place. I just want to get out. So. Malika Miriam hated the camp experience. But she said it wasn't exactly new. I have always experienced that. People trying to control what I wore. It's either to cover up more, forcing me to wear Ankara. When my mates were wearing like jeans and top. So in a way, I was used to that sort of control. People trying to exert control about it over me, over how I presented myself, or over what I wore. Everyone always had an opinion about what she could or couldn't wear. It was almost like her choice didn't matter. And that made her feel invisible. So my coping mechanism was to, you know, fight a little and find my own safe space and then wear what I want. When I was in school, in school, I wore what I wanted. And when I got home, I fought. So I just bent the rules a little bit to suit me. So it was something that I had been used to. Having people bully and judge you for how you choose to dress or the religion you identify with can be exhausting. So Malika Miriam found a support system. I had close friends, but then I now made them my village, my community. So we are already friends of like Muslim women who had issues, but we're not, we're close. But then I now made them like my support system. We became our support systems. So first of all, that means that I didn't have people around me who made me doubt myself regardless of what i was wearing who made me feel uncomfortable whether i chose to wear you know off shoulder today or i chose to wear the kimara today i made sure that like my village of people were, did not make me feel like that First of- it's not that malika miriam is immune to the misogyny that dictates what she should or shouldn't wear it's just easier for her to deal with it now that she has this strong friendship group with her friends dealing with feeling invisible is a little less stressful Okay, after the break, I'll bring you the story of a woman who had to become a troublemaker at work to be seen and heard. I'm Akona. I'm based in Johannesburg in South Africa. I work as a senior operations associate in a startup education company based here, and I'm 24. South Africa has the largest white population in Africa. So there are lots of companies owned and run by white people. Akona works in one of those companies. So the company does um, professional development for teachers and school leaders and people within the education space. Akona likes the company, right? But there's some things she just can't shake off. Like this one time her colleagues were prepping for an out-of-town presentation for a prospective client. She did background work on the project, but she wasn't part of the team presenting it to the client. Her bosses kind of just came up to her and said, well, you're coming with us. But then as we're preparing, like, people are practicing and we make sure, making sure everything is in order, I realized there isn't really anything that I'm supposed to be doing when we get there. 
so I'm not really quite sure where I'm, why I'm going. At the presentation, even the client struggled to understand why she was there. You're here, but we can't really tell or say why you're here. So they were actually putting in um, a lot of efforts to kind of like include me in the conversation because they were just like, why are you here? What do you do? We need to get an understanding of what you're doing. It's okay if you're confused at this point because it is confusing. Okay, so picture this. Akona is seated in the client's conference room with her colleagues. Everyone in the room has a designated role and a part of the presentation that they can speak on. Well, everyone except her. So while they're chatting about the project and answering questions, Akona is just there, staring. It wasn't until much later that she realized what had happened. I actually, I was having a conversation with, with one of my co-workers and I don't know what they heard. They heard something they were not supposed to hear. But someone had actually said, oh, and we're going to take Akona with because, you know, yeah, she's, she's the proper South African. Turns out Akona did have a role at that meeting to be the token black woman. I was the only black South African <laughs> that went for the presentation because my manager um, was black, but it was American. So that doesn't count for anything um, in terms of, of black, as, as, as far as blackness in South Africa is concerned. Remember that the company is run by white people? Yeah, they wanted her in that presentation to impress the client and show that they are diverse. I was initially like upset about the fact that I do valuable work here. And if you're going to see me as someone to take along with you to show that you have a South African, a black South African woman somewhere, I don't, I don't appreciate that. I'd really rather much not be that person. I, I felt very insulted. I was like, I did not come here to be a token person i came here to do work and i do that work every day and it impacts what we do every single day akona wanted her presence at meetings and work events to be because of her work not her race or gender i cannot be here as a token you know i absolutely cannot and also because no one would dare to do that to like because it wasn't just a, a race thing no one would do that to a black south african man she waited for a monthly work review with her manager to pour out her heart. She told him, "You say I'm good at all these things, but it doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to me that when it matters, you're taking my value into account. I do not feel yeah, I, like I just feel like I don't want to be a token person. I don't appreciate you taking me somewhere to be." We're inclusive. We have actual South Africans here. If that's the message you're trying to send across, you actually have to hire South Africans. You don't get to send that message without doing the work behind it. Please value me for my work. Yes, I'm a black South African. However, that might help. But that can't be how this entire value proposition is. Her manager felt bad. He hadn't looked at things from her perspective. You know, feeling out of place in that room with the clients. And just being there simply because she's a woman, a black South African woman. Felt so bad and he apologized and he was like, you know, I appreciate you holding us, you know, accountable for the things that we communicate. And then I think also he took the time to reflect. And then we later had a bigger, much larger fleshed out conversation also with the entire organization um, and not just with, with my manager one on one. That incident was the first time Akona felt sidelined by the company. But it wasn't the last. 
There was this other time she found out that a man in a general role was earning nearly the same as her. You're giving the person joining the company now more value than me, who has been here for the longest time and has been doing all this work and I still need to prove to you why I should be earning more than I'm doing. The thing is, the company values Akona's work. At least that's what they say. But she wants more than just words. She wants them to show it. I like what you're doing. Your values are on point and I feel like you care about me as a person. But if I have to have these conversations with you, that means that's not really the case. That's just the vibe you give off, but that's, that's not how you operate. There's always something going on. People not listening to her or she not getting paid what she deserved. She found herself constantly pointing out this inequality, which, by the way, her male counterparts were not subjected to. I was annoyed. I was angry because I was like, it's not fair that I have to do this. It's not fair that I constantly have to make noise in order to be seen or heard. Despite everything, Akona still works at this company. After the break, she tells us why. I asked Akona, why do you still work there? She said the company made some policy adjustments. So, um, part of it was like um, the, the salary thing was because that's most material. <laughs> that's the thing that, that actually matters. That's how people get to actually survive <laughs> in the mm. jungle. Like, it needs to be fair. And secondly, it was like the review process, like how we we review whether a policy, like whether it's an internal policy or outright, out, outward facing things are actually um, inclusive of, of women and black people. It's like, it has to be part of how we review it. Basically, the company policy is now big on diverse hires and fair pay because Akona consistently spoke up about it. You have to find your voice as a woman, unfortunately, to kind of like challenge the systems as they were. And if you not everyone gets to that point or not everyone is in an environment that allows them to mm -hmm. get to that point so like they just I don't know what but there just needs to be more support to empower women because yeah. if you don't stand up for yourself it's not no one's going to stand up for you kind of thing and that sucks it sucks that we have to live in that kind of thing but I had to find my voice at work Akona no longer needs to fight and shout to be seen or heard. She's not that invisible woman she was when she first started. Akona and I talked for an hour. The conversation was so good, we ended up delving into other unrelated topics. No, are you planning for the future? In fact, for a future, that probably <laughs> won't happen because I don't want to get married. But you're already planning for another man to come in and make decisions about your property. She's very much aware that she's one of the lucky ones, you know, that she was able to reclaim her space and get the company to see her value. Moving forward, Akona says she wants people, especially men, to interrogate the role that they play in pushing women aside, making them feel like they are invisible. Akona and Malika Miriam have found ways to navigate a world that sees them as subpar, invisible. And this is the reality for many others out there as well. Now that you've heard these stories, the question is, what are you going to do to correct this anomaly? That's something for us to think about.
Thank you for listening to this episode of I Like Girls. If you want to get in touch, visit ilikegirls.co. Also, if you like this episode, please rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening on. This episode is produced by me, Aisha Salahuddin. Audio engineering is by Daniel Atkins. Rahina Salhassan is our associate producer. Fuad Lawal is our editor. Meramomoyele is our graphic designer. And our theme music is by Banks with a double G. The other music you heard throughout this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to our partners, Radio Now 95.3 FM, Newswire Nigeria, and Femme Africa. Okay, I'll catch you all on the next episode.